I couldn't be religious and gay. It was impossible. I was being marketed as some sort of like teenage it girl. When a girl kissed me on my 18th birthday, a whole other world opened up to me. I was a minor nuisance. Eight Australians will tell you about the choices that have led them to unexpected places. These are some of the stories you will hear on Let Me Tell You, a podcast where real people tell incredible real stories. Look for Let Me Tell You and follow wherever you get your podcasts. You are listening to Chinese-ish, an SBS podcast about young Chinese Australians for young Chinese Australians. My name is Wing. I'm a journalist and former Chinese international student. I'm recording from Garlingo Country. I'm Mark. I'm a fresh out of uni graduate and a young Chinese Australian. I'm recording from Wurundjeri Country. In each episode, we will explore a theme that reflects the daily life of a young Chinese person living in today's Australia. Today we're talking about politics and about how we as young Chinese Australians kind of go about it all quite differently to our parents. Exactly, and with the federal election looming, what better time to talk about this issue? On today's episode, we'll be discussing how young Chinese Australians relate to the current political climate in Australia, especially the issues they care about, where they get their information from, and how they navigate talking about this with their parents. Yeah, I'm pretty keen to unpack that last one, actually, because I feel like our family has a pretty interesting history with politics and voting and stuff. How do you mean? Mm, so I got interested in politics from probably quite a young age. I was nine at the time, or maybe ten. And I remember the Rudd-Gillard saga as the moment that I got really, really invested in Australian politics. It just, it kind of had everything. High drama, lots of different players. I don't watch House of Cards, but that's kind of how I imagine it must be like. And the government was getting a lot of press at the time, and my parents were sort of developing this one perspective about that government. I was kind of developing another. So I was kind of like, you know what, let's talk about it. Let's, you know, have an intervention. Maybe let's just unpack those different perspectives. So I kind of just, like, told them what I thought, who I wanted them to vote for that year, and I'm pretty sure they did end up voting for who I suggested in that election. That's quite wild, actually. And is this still a thing for your family when it comes to politics? Kind of. So I think since then we've maybe diverged a little bit on issues. For example, in the 2014 Victorian state election, I remember my dad was really, really invested in, like, the East-West Link. He really wanted that freeway to be built, and I was kind of just like, no, not really. But that year I don't think he voted the way I wanted him to vote. But talking about politics, especially around election time, is, like, pretty much an established pattern in our household. I'm not sure if that's also the case for our guest today, and I would love to hear about their thoughts and experience on how they communicate with their parents on this. Today, we are joined by Thomas Fong, Media and Communication Manager for Youth Affairs Council, Victoria, or YACVIC. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me on today. We are also joined by Yanni Jiang, a second-generation Shanghainese migrant settler based in Nam. They have been involved in community organizing in solidarity with refugee and indigenous sovereignty movements. Hi, Wing. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. So I guess my really first question to both of you is that what is the best and the worst experience that you have with your parents when you talk about politics? I definitely have a worst experience and it came probably back in 2010 or 2011 when there was significant conversations around 
um, stopping the boats, um, offshore detention. At the time, Australia was proposing its third country solution or what was called the Malaysia solution, where people seeking asylum by boat would never be able to resettle in Australia. They would be granted a visa in Malaysia or in another, most likely in Southeast Asia, and they would be resettled there and have an opportunity to come to Australia. At the time, I was a teenager. I think a lot about my upbringing and how the opportunities and the life that I have been shaped by were just through luck. The luck of being able to be born here in Australia, the luck of growing up in an aspirational community. And I felt like this policy was incredibly unfair. My parents and my brother, on the other hand, um, did not agree. They felt that border security was an issue. They had experienced interracial violence. They believed that If we let everyone in, it would set a precedent and suddenly everyone would be coming into Australia. And I remember just ending up in a massive shouting match at the dinner table surrounding border policies because it was incredibly unfair. It's an incredibly inhumane and unjust policy that was being proposed. I remember yelling at them and crying just because I was so angry that they could not understand my side of the story. And I remember that really fondly because I think that experience has shaped how we talk about politics in our family. And it's led to what I see is respectful disagreement now, because we've never really talked about politics in the same way ever again. It's never ended up, thankfully, in such a shouting match. Mm. Do you feel like your personal experiences have kind of shaped the types of issues you're interested in? So I fundamentally believe that my involvement or investment with the issues that I care about surrounding fairness um, started in primary school. That was because I had a teacher, Miss Smith, who wanted us to be curious about the state of the world and about how other people live. We were told to find out about the people outside of our own bubbles. And I think that was the first time I learned about geography, ancient history, Indigenous cultures, and I guess now what would be politically incorrect in saying third world, second world, and me living in Australia being mostly exposed to the first world. My parents worked every single day. It was very normal for me, but it wasn't actually a very normal thing. They had multiple jobs. It wasn't as though they had uh, a steady income from one single job. They were trying to make ends meet through working multiple jobs in different industries at all very relatively low paying roles. And when I moved to primary school, which was incredibly diverse, there were people that looked like me, people that didn't look like me from all different kinds of backgrounds, people with disabilities. I was in a cultural melting pot in the southeastern suburbs. From there, I moved to an extremely white high school. It's the same high school that Spin King Shane Warne went to, also the same high school that Andrew Bolt went to. And I think suddenly I realised that I was extremely different. I was not part of this community. I had to catch a bus an hour and a half, one way to get to school. It was literally like on the bus I was travelling. I could see the world changing. Yanni, what are your thoughts on this? I think my personal experiences have definitely shaped what I care about, uh, but it sort of came to me in a different order, if that makes sense. So... I think I was really lacking the language or understanding of of how to speak and and think about my experiences and we sort of understand it as having, say, internalised racism or internalised sexism or things that sort of you internalise by living in 
a white supremacist culture with, you know, a colony, you know, there are things you internalize and that you learn through a world that's been put on you. And so I couldn't really understand until I sort of learned a bit of that language. And I've been fortunate to do that through uni. So uni was definitely my entry point in terms of having that critical understanding that then cast a lot of questions to my past experiences and, and made me reflect on my position as someone who, who it was born here, a second generation migrant who is East Asian, who's Chinese. I think the first, the dominant thing that I was understanding was a race position about where I was, whose land I was in, what that relationship looked like and what that meant for me. And from there, that sort of really expanded to me doing solidarity work, particularly in uh, refugee liberation and also Indigenous sovereignty movements. Why do you think your parents' experience uh, made it different from your view and what kind of difference? Yeah, there definitely is a fundamental difference in our views because of the fundamental differences in experiences. So my parents, they left their families, they packed up all of their belongings, they left lives that they had started to establish back in China to a completely new country where they didn't really know anyone and they only just had a, a couple hundred dollars. And that was back in 1987, which was extremely early for Chinese immigrants. And they've been able to establish a level of wealth which they probably wouldn't have been able to do in China. But if they had stayed in China, it would have been a comfortable life, a, a life where they wouldn't have had to work multiple jobs a day. They probably wouldn't have experienced racism to the extent that they have here. Because we've grown up in, in working class communities, it's been extremely diverse in those communities. And unfortunately for my parents, they've also been subject to interracial violence. My parents have also lived in share houses with 20 people in the inner suburbs of Melbourne. So fundamentally, because of that, there are things that we disagree on. And there is a language barrier. Ultimately, their first language is Chinese. They're very competent in English, but they were to talk about politics or anything we would consider sort of sophisticated kind of conversation. They would prefer to speak in Chinese about that. And also because they are more connected to China side of China, they consume Chinese and Western media. So they'll often talk back to me and say, well, you know, I can see the Chinese way and the Western way. But you, Thomas, you can only see the Western way because you were brought up here and you mainly consume English speaking media. I fundamentally disagree with that view, but that's something that they will perceive that they can do because of the fact that they're native Chinese speakers, they consume Chinese language media, they uh, speak predominantly to other Chinese people that live in Australia. Compared to with myself, who is connected to other Australians and a lot of Chinese Australians as well. Yeah, I think I have a bit of a different answer for my parents in terms of politics because what they've done was they essentially transplanted the politics and the way of life before they moved into a pocket or a community here in Brisbane uh, that's very much not changed for them. We sort of stayed in the very sort of East Asian, South Asian and Pacifica heavy community and there was a sense of support and ethnic comfort uh, that meant that they sort of found a little a place where they could have community and live. And so my understanding of my parents is that whenever I tried to talk to, say, my mum about something, she would transplant her understanding of Chinese politics and how life was 
in China to understand a situation that I'm trying to explain to her. And I think I don't want to understate as well that in terms of education, because she was someone who never finished high school or sort of left grade nine, and she also has feelings of insecurity and self-doubt, and that sort of transplants across not wanting to engage in politics because she worries that it's not something that she can intellectually grasp. But it's something that I've really tried to talk to my parents about, and this is from uh, I've recently been working in the union movement, is that their experiences as working class uh, people here, uh, particularly around uh, paying conditions and, and understanding uh, the kinds of how, how class matters here, um, is something that I've used to try to break them out of a political, not apathy, but I guess insecurity of like actually engaging is that, you know, you're affected in a very real way, um, particularly in the sort of class and racial sort of aspect. And I'm trying to bring you an understanding uh, through that way. So using their ground experiences and using examples that are very political, that they probably don't consider as politics, but it's what grounds their lives. Like you said, Thomas, like working seven days a week, probably working for shit pay, um, shit conditions, you know, trying to bring that life experience element that they know for sure and broaden that out and I guess widen the brush strokes to talk about other things. I'm sort of curious to pick up on this point around all this idea that your parents might know better than us because they've lived in both places, kind of consume media from both places, um, they've seen more of the world than us, that kind of thing. Yanni, I know you've just talked about some of the ways you've tried to navigate that, but Thomas, I'm curious if you've had any success on your end. With my mum, we have a really different relationship. You know, if I'm talking to her about politics, usually we would have talked about everything else that's going on before politics. Um, we're really open, we're really chatting, we joke around a lot. So when we do talk about politics, my role is about listening to her, understanding where she's at in the world. I don't think it's fair for me to assume that whatever she has to say is wrong and for me to try and change her view. In Chinese culture, respecting your elders is incredibly important. And so to challenge that can be really, really confronting and it's not necessarily going to have a high success rate. In many circumstances, it ends up the worst scenario, as I described back at the start of the podcast. So we have to try and approach it and use it as an opportunity to unpack the lives in general. I think Chinese families are really, really difficult to unpack and to learn about. I think of the movie, you know, The Farewell and how hard it was for for Aquafina to learn about what was going on with her grandma. They don't tell you shit when you're young. It's only unlike you're a little bit older and they're like, oh, by the way, this happened, this happened, and this happened. And, you know, this happened like a month ago. I'm like, what? Like, this is so strange. What the hell? I think politics is a really good way to talk about the world and slowly but surely unpeel layers of the onion of our parents. Yeah, I've got a, a bit of solution or rebuttal whenever your parents are like, oh, you're too westernised, or you love America too much, or you love Australia too much, you don't get it. <laughs> whenever it's like me being like, I know international or global politics, let me speak on that. And they're like, that's a... CIA. <laughs> so my quick rebuttal, if you ever get told by your parents that you're just too westernized, or maybe it's a quick rebuttal if you share my politics, is that 
um, whenever I try to speak on China or things going on in in China, uh, that's contrary to the Chinese sources that they're receiving, probably through WeChat, and they're like, oh, you know, you probably just read The Guardian. That's so westernised. I'm like, joke's on you, Dad. I hate Australia as well. Not a huge fan of certain actions from the CCP. Also, hate America, hate Australia. Most governments I probably hate. So <laughs> you can't pin me down on that. <laughs> I won't read any source but one source. <laughs> so don't hate me on that. We touch on the very key word that every English media, when they report on the Chinese-Australian community, will definitely mention WeChat. So tell me, are your parents reading news from WeChat? WeChat. Oh gosh. Yes, WeChat all the way. Although surprisingly, my dad gets a lot of his news about politics and international affairs from YouTube, from Chinese political commentators, things that I would never find on my YouTube feed, but miraculously always seems to be on his. And at any time I'm visiting home, he's watching like some new political commentator. My mum, her life is on WeChat. She reads a lot of things on it, but I don't hold it against her. You know, there's a lot of shitty clickbait on WeChat, similar to Facebook. You know, WeChat is... Facebook clickbait times five, but in Chinese. I don't know. What about you, Yanni? Wow, my dad is also a YouTube dad. <laughs> He's actually moved off WeChat too. He's just sitting at his desktop all day. <laughs> he listens to some Chinese commentators. He also randomly listens to some white American dudes who I also, I don't know what what's that about. So maybe he is getting the the picture of the, the Americans China. Maybe he is getting, you know, all the perspectives. Mum lives on WeChat. There's a new, I feel like there's a new platform in contention. I don't know if folks know about the little red book, Xiao Hongshu. Mum's been hitting up Xiao Hongshu hard as well. To my understanding, it's very similar to WeChat. If our family group chat is anything to go by, there is a lot of strange things that circulate in WeChat. And I think that a lot of the things that when when it's things like uh, are political, first of all, like if it's a ch- about Chinese current affairs, it's obviously definitely going to skew towards the CCP uh, and particularly on issues like Hong Kong and Xinjiang. Uh, I could definitely tell that the circulation and the sort of social media uh, hits and how that's been done was really got my parents, and that that was when I was trying to have some harder conversations because that's all the sort of patriotic, all the things sort of coming out, they sort of really got swept up into. I'm sure that both of you have been following this news about Scott Morrison's WeChat accounts being stolen or, well, stolen is not an actually correct word, is that is WeChat account was suddenly renamed into some random account. There has been this whole suspicion about China's for interference of buying Scott Morrison's WeChat account, which in fact is more just about the fact that that account was registered under a Chinese citizen's ID because that's what you're required to do if you want to get a subscription from WeChat. And that person happened to have sold the WeChat account to someone else. And therefore, Scott Morrison never own his WeChat account anymore. But then again, lots of politicians from both major parties said that they would still insist 
having their WeChat accounts there, despite their security experts talking about the risk of CCP, the Chinese Communist Party's influence. How do you feel about all these politicians so eager to launch a WeChat account before the election? Do you think we this is actually an effective way for them to communicate with people like your parents? So... The electorate that my parents live in is the same electorate as Gladys Seal. Um, she was also actually the president of my local chess club, and I played chess with her kids, and that's just how small this kind of Chinese community is in the southeast. In the electorate of Chisholm, there's a significant Chinese-speaking community, and in the last election, it was Gladys Hong Kong Southern Chinese versus Jennifer Yang for Labour. It was two Chinese-Australian women battling it out to represent the community of Chisholm. I think that speaks volumes because um, about 20 or 30% of that community speaks Chinese. So in that sense, it's incredibly normal and it makes sense for them to have a WeChat account, not just because they can speak Chinese, but also because of the demographic of their community. But also I think we need to recognise the importance of Chinese Australians when it comes to the electoral demographic. I believe like 10% of Australians have Chinese background and WeChat's probably the easiest way to communicate with them. Yes, you've got like community radio, like 3CW, um, and you've got some Chinese language newspapers, but WeChat is probably the easiest way that you're going to reach Chinese-speaking people in the same way that Facebook and Instagram are probably the easiest and cheapest way to try and reach people from a specific demographic. In many ways, WeChat is just being is just being used in the same way that Facebook and Twitter is um, to target a particular demographic because there's no cheaper and more effective way to try and do that. Fun fact, I stalked Scott Morrison's WeChat uh, years ago and I thought I'd still followed him. So the fact that his account has been... <laughs> it makes sense why he's not popping up anymore. I just sort of want to keep tabs on him in, 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 the, WeChat, in the WeChat space. It just it is a tool. I think it's a tool just like Facebook and other social media channels are a tool to reach a demographic that largely uses. For me though, I think that when it's like politicians that don't necessarily want to speak to their local demographic where the votes really count towards um swinging you either way, I think it is a recognition that Chinese capital here is growing. I think that's a bit of a dog whistle, to be honest. And sometimes the myth of that is overstated and blown up. And it's in some ways created a beast of its own where, yes, Chinese folks, particularly East Asians here, there's been some time to build that quotation marks up in mobility and build that capital um, where you do see that there are um, some significant political funders who are of Chinese background. Um, but again, uh, the beast of Chinese capital, which is quite xenophobic because it ignores all the working class and struggling unhoused Chinese folk, other Asians as well, that are not captured in that. And I think in my head, I speculate that they're, they're hunting for something that is maybe not as consequential as they would like. Uh, but certainly WeChat is the sort of easiest way to, for mass communication to talk to a community. It's not very effective unless you're doing on the ground work. And if you understand the community, you understand that the community is not where you think it is and you're not speaking to the issues that they actually experiencing. 
Also, I think it's really important to acknowledge that there are so many hoops to jump through to even get an official WeChat account that if politicians are, or, or candidates are willing to try and jump through those hoops, it does speak volumes about how hard they are trying to reach the Chinese-speaking community. Obviously, China and Australia are in a trade war. And recently, there have been some conflicts between the two countries, both economically and sometimes strategically. And also, in this coming federal election, it seems that China policy is also going to be a really big focus in terms of campaigning. We can see that both Labour and Liberals have stated that they will be very strong on the position of China. Meanwhile, Scott Morrison has accused Anthony Albanese of being the representative of Beijing, and Albanese has strongly denied this, saying this is just one of the strategies that the Liberals have tried to play for the election campaign. But seeing China as a foreign country having such a big role in Australian politics and often in the discussion of Chinese-Australian community, what are your thoughts on this? Do you really feel that this foreign country matter that much to you? I think seeing this sort of discourse play out and having a sort of using uh, sort of China as a political tool, uh, it really trickles down to how it affects everyday Chinese Australians as well. And I, I mean directly the racism that we can face. It really feels like an element of the Red Scare coming back where uh, this is on top of COVID as well, where uh, xenophobia is already extremely ramped up and you're already a perpetual foreigner sort of before the sort of more intensified play we've seen recently. And this is emboldened everyday people to feel entitled to enact these sorts of violence and racism on an everyday scale. And I think it can't be understated where we can see that this is high-level play, political play, but how does that actually affect folks uh, on an everyday level if this sort of discourse continues to uh, stick around and we're not actually having on-the-ground conversations, not just between community, but for people to understand that you actually need to push back on that and not let the big politicians play us like pawns. Hmm, I guess like one observation that I can make here is that it sounds like we, you know, when we started out talking about issues and personal experiences and that kind of thing, right? But I was just, I can't help but notice we've kind of meandered back to talking about all of this very much like closely in relation to the electoral system and talking about how, you know, Chinese Australians as a cohort participate in that system. I guess my question is like, do you feel like the election cycle is kind of a galvanizing moment to be able to have these conversations or like a gateway into having broader conversations? Or do you see them as completely separate things? I think it does galvanize it, but I'm very anti sort of, because you, you see it, right? You see a cycle of, if you follow talking points by a cycle, things rise and peak every three years. And our work as people who organise in community who, who want to do this work is to make sure that you're not bound by the election cycle. and you're, you're not bound by these silly timeframes that you're sort of forced into and the narratives that's pushed on because we can see it's cyclical. That was really, really good, Yanni. I'm, I agree with you in terms of not being, like, not wanting to be bound by the timeframes. It's definitely, like push and pull, working with the system that we have, working outside the system. 
external versus internal kind of pressures. My perspective on that question is that discussions with my family and discussions with other Chinese Australians in my community, they often do revolve around election. The election is a galvanising moment where we can get to learn more about someone compared to the two or three years preceding that. I remember for the first time that I could vote, that it was also probably the first time that I knew where my Chinese Australian friends finally stood on the political spectrum because prior to that we had never had those conversations before. We were probably just talking about things on like subtle Asian traits, bubble tea, anime, gaming, other random public culture kind of references and other kind of common experiences around growing up Chinese Australian. But we probably never would have talked about politics or how our parents voted or or where, you know, what really, really matters to us or our families. So in those scenarios, the election is galvanizing. It's a point of conversation. It's a point to invite an understanding which only comes around every few years or any time a leader gets caught, which used to be quite semi-frequent here. So politics is a gateway for further conversation, further depth of understanding with Chinese people, Chinese families. You know, we're so hard to crack so any opportunity that you have to chip away at that stone to find what is really at the heart of your family or or people you care about is a welcome one. There are only three MP of Chinese heritage sitting in parliament, both upper house and lower house. How important do you feel it is to have Chinese Australians in the parliament? Or do you feel that as long as that politicians speak for you on certain issues, then that's fine. Race is not that important. Race matters. It's important that we have Chinese Australians in parliament. Um, Their background matters, their lived experience matters. It's important to recognise that the Chinese community is an incredibly diverse community as well. You have people who came here 35 years ago, like my parents, and you've got people who've been here since the gold rush over 170 years ago. And you've also got new generations of Chinese people coming for university study or other ventures. So it's important to recognise that no one Chinese person can speak for every single Chinese person. I think the lack of representation speaks to the fear of speaking out that has traditionally been entrenched in Chinese people's lives. For example, we cannot really speak openly about what happens in China now for fear of retribution, um, which would mean potentially never being able to see our families ever again or being permanently separated from loved ones. I also feel as though the fear of retribution is a historical part of China. To look at Chinese history, let me go a bit Chinese dad on you, the rise and fall of dynasties. If you were on the wrong side of the fallen dynasty, you were suddenly on the bottom. If you were climbing the top, suddenly rising to the new dynasty, suddenly you would be up top in a position of power, but you may have lived for many years or decades even on the wrong side and at the very bottom of Chinese society. And so I think with the rise and fall of political power and and that being entrenched in Chinese history, there is a fear of speaking out, of being in the wrong side of history, of ending up as an exile, because you don't want to be on the bottom class when it comes to China. Like It means right now that you are not able to leave the country, that you may not even be able to buy a train ticket, or it also limits access with your finances as well. So for us as Chinese Australians, people with Chinese descent, we, I guess, are concerned that if we do speak up, if we do put our hand up to go for politics, 
that we may not be able to see our families or we may not, there may be other consequences that we cannot control. That, that trauma presents a hesitation for us or our families and our communities to speak up. Yeah, I think I personally feel quite ambivalent about representation in, in politics, in electoral politics, because you find that it can happen and it is often that no matter who uh, sits at a particular position, you can very much perpetuate the same positions and policies as those have done before in the same position as you. I don't want to understate the power, the transformative power it would be to actually have marginalised folks from various communities to be in positions of power. Uh, I guess for me, I like to conceptualise that power as sitting outside of a formal electoral sort of political system because I'm quite cynical of the dangers of falling into the tropes of having a woman of colour in charge but she's still doing the same sort of things that, say, like a a white, uh, crusty old male would do. Is there anything you're planning to do differently this year with your family when it comes to the election? I guess for me, I've never been too worried federally just because I know how they vote. And so I haven't had to have particularly hard conversations when they've been thinking uh, to be swayed um, to the other one. Uh, But I think for myself, I think now that I have better communication with them and that's just from being older and being having a more adult relationship with them that I've really phased out having those shouting matches and a lot of the lessons that I've learned earlier is to give them the space and because sometimes I can be stuck in the mind of persuasion conversion or like having that particular goal in mind um even when I'm like putting things in their terms I really need to do away with that and and maybe hold a radical openness that I actually want to afford them and I think those conversations generally take a longer time to marinate and stew but they tend to have better outcomes if there's anything that I'm doing differently this election it's Again, not trying to convince my Chinese dad, but I think as a result of this conversation particularly and learning from Yanni and also winging a mark from some of your experiences, I've been thinking about how I might use some other examples that they can relate to further and and how I can potentially relate to some of their experiences further when we do speak around issues surrounding politics. And I'm also going to use, like, my next family dinner time where there is, like, forced conversation as a springboard to talk meaningfully about politics. It's one of the few times that we can have long and meaningful conversations as Chinese families. And, you know, with this election being such an important election, I'm going to make sure that's an emphasis at least a few times throughout this election campaign. Thank you for listening to Chinese-ish, an SBS podcast about young Chinese Australians for young Chinese Australians. This episode was hosted by Wing Kuang and Mark Yin. Our sound designer is Max Gosford. Thanks also to Rachel Sibley, Caroline Gates and Tanya Lee for their support. For more about Chinese-ish, follow us on our social media or check out our website, sbs.com.au slash Chinese-ish.